Well, last week we began a new sermon series on the book of Romans, and if you remember, I challenged you uh, to start afresh with regards to the gospel. We all have a, have, feel like we have a sense of what the gospel is, but let's just start from square one again. And, and we saw last week that the gospel uh, literally means good news, uh, and the gospel is good news for mankind. And in order for good news to be good news, it, it must address some sort of bad news, right? Or at least the threat thereof. Now, this week and for the next four weeks, we'll be investigating the bad news. Why so many weeks? Well, Paul spends many verses covering the bad news. It's not until midway through chapter 3 does Paul present the gospel in such a way that it just explodes upon our hearts. But in order for us to be ready for the explosion of God's grace that we see midway through Romans chapter 3, we must come to the regretful truth that our hearts are in desperate need of change. Change from above. So today I'm going to ask you to wrestle with some bad news. And for some of you, it'll feel like kind of when you're a kid and you used to wrestle with your dad, right? Um, for others, it's going to feel like a Jason Bourne kind of reality of just fighting for your life. Wrestling with God can be difficult, yet it brings blessing into our lives. We come to know God more fully, and we come to know ourselves more fully, which I think are two things we need to do. So, you ready to rumble? All right. Uh, here we go. Romans 1, verses 18 through 32. It's in your Bibles, it's in your bulletins, uh, follow along as I read. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became uh, fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them up, in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is forever blessed. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetedness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, Inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. 
Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you want to know God, if you want to know his will, if you want to know his way, we must know his word. Father, we submit our souls to you. Uh, We confess that this is your word to us, and it takes some wrestling, uh, and it's hard. Um, And we pray that you would show us what is true and right, and and that we would submit and and honor you in, in our thoughts and actions and beliefs and practices. And and that you would receive glory for your work in us, we pray. Amen. Are you familiar with the phrase, the 800-pound gorilla in the room? It refers uh, to the tension in a room that must be addressed before you can move on productively, right? We've all experienced that. If we were to take a survey uh, of our culture, maybe in this room, of what we think the 800-pound gorilla is in this text, what do you think most people would point to? I think many people today would point to the point where Paul mentions homosexuality. That's surely a hot topic today, right? I agree, it's, it's a gorilla in the room. But let me make an, an, an observation. Let's say you lived in the Enlightenment era and you read this text. What do you think the 800-pound gorilla would be? Well, it wouldn't be what ours is necessarily. You would, you would, you would say uh, verse 19 and 20. You would say... No, Paul, God has not made himself abundantly clear. God does not prove himself in creation. In fact, that's why we have science, and science is showing us that this world wasn't created by God. There would there'd be a totally different 800-pound gorilla in the text. If you lived back in Paul's day and you were a Gentile, a pagan, you wouldn't take issue with God being revealed in nature. You wouldn't be, take issue with Paul's mention of homosexual practices. The, the 800-pound gorilla in the room for you would be where Paul bashes on idols. You would say, shut up, Paul. What do you mean these idols on my shelves or, that, or that, that totem out in the backyard doesn't do anything good for me? My idols are powerful. You see the point I'm making? Whether you're ancient pagan man or enlightenment man or modern man, we can get myopic with regards to what we think is an 800-pound gorilla in this text. Now, I'm not saying there isn't one. I think I can point us to one. Uh, uh, a, a part in our text that, that is such a, a big issue that if we don't resolve that, we cannot even begin to discuss the other parts of the text. And we see it in verse 18, very at the beginning. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. The 800-pound gorilla, I think, is that God is angry with what's going on on earth, and he has a right to be. See, it's not until we properly understand God's wrath that we can move on and really try to wrap our heads around lots of other things that we see in Scripture, and we won't even be able to truly understand our need uh, of a Savior. So today we're going to focus on that. We'll discuss some other things as well. But we're going to ask, what does it mean that God's wrath is revealed? And what does it mean for for human beings who live on earth? And and how does this all relate to the gospel? All right? That's what we're doing. First, Verse 18, Paul makes a statement. It's a charge. He says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Now, he's either right or he is wrong. (laughs) Let me ask you this. Does your conception of God allow for him to be angry? Many read this text and they say, you know what? My God would never be like this. We think we're doing God a favor by removing from him any characteristics of anger. 
But in fact, we're only doing ourselves a disfavor. Let me present this point. In denying that God is a wrathful God, you're also denying that God is loving. How so? Well, Ray Ortland Jr. frames it this way. Listen, he says, What is the wrath of God? It is his outrage when he looks at the world today. If God looked at our world today and liked it, or were just indifferent towards it, could we respect him, much less worship him? A non-indignant God would be an accomplice. Who is the most loving person in all the Bible? God. Who is the angriest person in all the Bible? God. The Bible says God is love. It never says God is anger, but it couldn't say that God is love without his anger because it's his anger that makes his love amazing. My friends, a loving God must be angry. If he isn't angry, then he really doesn't love. What's God's anger focused upon? Verse 18, Paul says that God's wrath is revealed against what? All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God is angry at two distinct things, ungodliness and unrighteousness. Ungodliness speaks of our disregard uh, for God and his rights over creation and over us as creatures. It addresses the vertical um, reality between the creator and man. And, it, and Paul's pointing out that that vertical reality is, is out of whack, that, they're, that, they're, um, that instead of God being God, we live as if we are gods. Unrighteousness addresses the, the horizontal It addresses our disregard for human rights, for love of neighbor, uh, for justice, um, for truth. Jesus told us, unless you read earlier, uh, what the proper vertical and horizontal looks like when he said that you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Vertical, right? And you're to love your neighbor as yourself. Horizontal. My friends, is that the way the world lives today? No, that's what Paul's getting at in this text. Now, some people, when they think of God in heaven, they picture him up there like keeping track of every little sin and putting them in a little file cabinet and at some point in time bringing them all out and said, do you remember this day? you remember this day? you remember how bad you were, right? That, I mean, that's what I used to think, you know, it was all about. So, um, yes, God knows what we're doing. He sees our actions, good and bad. But Paul points us to a sin here um, that is with a capital S. And it's one under which all other of our sins um, are, um, find themselves um, under. They encompasses all of our sin. And what's the big sin that has angered God? It's the sin of suppressing the truth. The Greek word katakane means to, to hinder, to, to stifle, to obscure, to repress. R.C. Sproul asks us to do this, to, to, to think of a, a giant coil that requires all of your weight to press it down. By nature, this is what we do with the truth of God. We press it down out of our conscious minds. We press it into our subconscious minds. We, we want to eradicate it, but we cannot get rid of it. Why? Because it's everywhere pushing back up. We suppress the truth about God when we behold a beautiful sunset and choose to think it's not all that interesting. 
We suppress the truth about God when we think about the elegance of mathematics and physics and we say, you know, God isn't all that awesome. We suppress the truth about God when we enjoy tenderness and joyfulness uh, amongst friends or family members and we choose to think, well, God really isn't that loving. And we suppress the truth concerning ourselves when we say to ourselves, the problem isn't with me. And then we go about making other people accountable. We suppress the truth when we deny the corruption within. And you know what? We moderns are really good at denying the corruption within our own hearts. In 2011, the esteemed New York Times editorialist David Brooks wrote a column titled, check this out, Let's All Feel Superior. I'm going to read a bit from it. He says, People are really good at self-deception. We attend to the facts we like and suppress the ones we don't. We inflate our own virtues and predict that we'll behave more nobly than we actually do. As Benjamin and Tenbrussel write in their book, Blind Spots, what, uh, when it comes time to make a decision, our thoughts are dominated by thoughts of how we want to behave. Thoughts of how we should behave disappear. He says, in centuries past, people built moral systems that acknowledged this weakness. These systems emphasized our own sinfulness. They reminded people of the evil within themselves. Life was seen as an inner struggle against the selfish forces inside. These vocabularies made people aware of how their weakness, weaknesses manifested themselves and how to exercise discipline over them. He goes on to say, but we're not Puritans anymore. We live in a society oriented around our inner wonderfulness. So when something atrocious happens, people look for some artificial outside force that must have caused it, like the culture of college football or some other favorite bogey. People look for laws that can be changed so it never happens again. Commentators ruthlessly vilify all involved from the island of their own innocence. Everyone gets to proudly ask, how could they have let this happen? The proper question is, how can we ourselves overcome our natural tendency to evade and self-deceive? That was the proper question after Abu Ghraib made off in the Wall Street follies and a thousand other scandals. But it's a question this society has a hard time asking because the most seductive evasion is the one that leads us to deny the underside of our own nature. Challenging words. Do you see that in our society? see that in the world around you? The, the way of avoiding and suppressing our own uh, sinfulness and magnifying others and making bogeymen out of it? Do you see it in the world around you? Better yet, do, do you see it in your own heart, the tendency to do this? Some of you might be quick to think, well, well, it's not me. I don't suppress the truth about God. Really? You see what you just did? Some else might think, if it's anybody's fault, it's God's. He hasn't shown me enough. Paul says in verse 19 and 20, he gives us proof that we are without excuse. To prove that we suppress the truth, Paul must first establish that we know the truth, and he does so in verses 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attribute, attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, 
have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Paul says you have no excuse for suppressing the truth. Uh, uh, he, he says everybody knows enough. And what is it that everybody knows? That there is a creator God. Uh, he shows himself plain and simple, says Paul. How so? Through his creation, in the things that have been made. And we're supposed to, from looking at the creation around us, be able to, to understand some of God's attributes, namely his power and his divine nature. The world we live in screams, I have been made by a glorious, powerful, wonderful creator. Paul is saying, we as human beings, suppress that. Are you familiar with the Tesla Model S car? It's an amazing car, electric car. When you look at that car, is it proper for you to conclude that there was no design team behind it, that, that, that the car came about as without any particular thought or rhyme or reason? If you were to be at a car show standing next to Elon Musk, the founder of Tesla and the, kind of the brains behind the car, if you were to look at a car with him and say, you know, I don't see what the big deal is. It's, anybody could do that. What would he rightly say? Stop suppressing the truth. <laughs> You're being foolish. This car screams of a design team that spent years thinking about what this car might look like and coming up with various options and things that could be done. And we had to create all new technologies just to make it so it all fits inside of there. Are you an idiot or something? The Tesla Model S screams that it has a creator. How much more foolish are we when we look at the world around us and conclude, well... Nothing so special about it. There's really no great creator of power and divine authority. That's what Paul is getting at. God's, but Paul says that God has sufficiently shown himself to man and that he doesn't owe us any more. His point is if, if you don't believe in God and, and if you haven't placed him as your central desire of your life, um, then you're suppressing the truth. It's not God's fault. He says you are without excuse. Now, in verses 21 through 23, Paul points out what, uh, how this works in our lives as human beings. He describes what this suppressing of the truth looks like, how it works its way out, and what we see is it's a downward spiral. See if you can pick up on this in verse 21 through 23. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The downward spiral begins with the words, for although they knew God, they did not honor him or give him thanks. Paul writes that mankind did not honor God. What does it mean to honor God? Well, what does it mean to honor your parents or honor your teacher or honor your boss or coach? It means that you acknowledge their rightful authority over you, that you place yourself in a position under their authority. To honor God, therefore, is not to just give like a little wink to God in heaven and say, you know, uh, you know, hey man upstairs, I got your back, you know. No, to honor God means that you acknowledge his supremacy, that you, that you see him as ultimate in the universe. It, it means that you got the vertical right. Paul says that people also did not worship God. What does it mean to worship God? You know, worshiping God is more than just, you know, showing up, 
you know, every other Sunday and singing five songs about God, right? Um, Worship is the right response of the creature who's been made in God's image. Paul writes, they did not honor him or give thanks to him. Worship is appreciation. It's, It's giving credit where credit is due. It's being thankful to God and living your life in grateful response to him. Worship is a lifestyle. It's a a state of renewed mind towards God. Paul Paul gets to this finally in chapter 12 of Romans when he really unleashes um, this wonderful newness that we have in Christ where he says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Worshiping God isn't an event. It's a reorientation of your life to the reality that God is on the throne and not you and living in that accordingly. The problem is, when we don't, Paul says the consequences of orienting our lives around ourselves has a downward spiral. He says that their thinking became futile, right? Their foolish hearts became darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Here's Paul's point. When we shut the reality of God out of our lives, it sets us on a trajectory uh, of suppressing the truth in an ongoing, deeper and deeper, uh, uh, spiraling out of relationship with God. The, the, The darkness that is in our lives becomes darker, so to speak. It's a downward spiral. If you suppress the truth that 2 plus 2 is 4, then all of mathematics for you will be futile. If you suppress the truth that that God is creator of all and that your life belongs with him, all of your thinking about all things that are in in his creation will be futile. You see how that works? So belief in God, what do we do about this truth? Let me ask you that question. What do we do about this truth to suppress it? We suppress the truth that God exists. Why? Because we don't like where it takes us. We prefer living without a God above us. We prefer to feel like we're free. So ultimately, belief in God is not an intellectual problem. It's a a heart problem. Our hearts do not want to go to the place where God is on his throne. We want to captain our own ships, even if that means we're, we're sailing into the darkness. And so no matter how intellectually smart we become, our rebellious hearts will not let our minds entertain truth concerning God. We suppress it. That's why C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, makes this point. He says, check this out. Fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. Did you get that? The consequence is that man thinks he's living free without God, but Paul shows us how foolish our thinking is. Verse 22, 23, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. Now, uh, got a little car theme going here. Uh, Say you own a brand new Ferrari, California. I can tell you that's a wonderful car. Uh, on my sabbatical, uh, Leslie and I, we, for two days, we got to drive around a Ferrari, California. Paddle shifters and all. I'm telling you, it's a phenomenal car. Yeah, yeah it was a good sabbatical. Um, 
Say you own brand new Ferrari, uh, California, and I were to come up to you with a toy model replica of that, and I were to say to you, how about we exchange cars? What would you say? You think I'm an idiot? Do you think I'm a fool? Who in their right mind would exchange something as glorious as this car you can drive for one that just sits there as a replica? See the point Paul's making? We exchange the reality and the truth of a relationship lived in the presence of God for his glory. And we, when we exchange that for God-like things that will never satisfy us. We begin to worship not the creator, but things within the creation. Now, I know you can point to a neighbor who does this, but do you see the tendency in your own heart? Paul wants us to see the boat that we're in. We're sailing in it together. We're in trouble. See, human beings were made by God for worship. And just because we stop worshiping God doesn't mean we stop worshiping. Paul says that we've turned our hearts from the creator and placed it on things in the creation. Bill Maher once quipped, he said, let's face it, God has a big ego problem. Why do we always have to worship him? Well, Bill, because if you don't worship God, who alone eternally satisfies, then you will worship some godlike substitute, which in the end will only let you down and never satisfy. God calls us to worship him because it's good for us to take our minds off of idols in this world and look up towards God. And So we, the thing we need to realize is that you know, we become what we worship. Uh, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe said these words. He says, we are shaped and fashioned by what we love. Ralph Waldo Emerson writes, a person will worship something. Have no doubt about that. We may think our tribute is paid in secret in the dark recesses of our hearts, but it will out. That which dominates our imaginations and our thoughts will determine our lives and our character. Therefore, it behooves us to be careful what we worship. For what we are worshiping, we are becoming. If you worship at the altar of financial gain, you will become a person who views others primarily through the lens of how they can profit you financially. If you worship at the altar of financial security... You will become a person who hoards money and lacks generosity towards your fellow man. If you worship at the altar of sexual intimacy, you will become a person who evaluates other people upon how they can fulfill your temporal joys and excitements. See, everyone in this room worships something. We bow down to it. It's either God the creator or it's something in the created order. You think your career serves you? If your career is your idol, you will bow down before it, not the other way around. And you'll end up doing things you know aren't right, and in the end you will justify yourself. Ray Ortland Jr. again, here's what he says. He says, the Bible is describing our whole chosen way of life as culture today. Our culture, check this out, 
is a brilliantly designed mechanism for exchanging the glory of God for idols. That's what our culture is for, to persuade us that it's smart to exchange the glory of God for idols within the creation, that never say no to us. But it's foolishness, because only God lasts forever. All over the world, mankind everywhere is worshiping things within the creator instead of the creator himself. Oh, how foolish that is. How does God respond to man's rebellion? Three times in our passage, man exchanges something, something good from God for something that's regrettable. Did you pick up on that? Three times man has exchanged something. In verse 21 to 24, uh, people exchange the truth of God for idols. And then what happens? God gave them up. Verse 25 and 26a, people exchange the truth of God for a lie and God gave them up. Verse 26b through 31, people exchange natural sexual practices for unnatural and God gave them up. Now what's going on here? Is God giving up on people? No. If that were the case, he never would have sent his son. We wouldn't be here right now reading what we're reading in the book of Romans. The verb gives up means to to hand over. When I was a youth pastor back in St. Louis, there were times when parents sat before me in tears. They would share something about how their child basically was living as if if they were dead. The child no longer listened to them or did anything and, and very disobedient, wouldn't receive corrections. And on a few occasions, I actually had parents say to me, you know, there's nothing more I can do. I'm resolved, all that I can do is just turn my son over to the lifestyle that he's choosing in the hopes that he will eventually see his wrong and turn back to me. That's a tough spot to be in as a parent. Some of us little kids were like, oh, I don't think that'll never happen to me. Well, let's pray it doesn't. But what we see here is, is parents giving their children over and saying, all right, if this is where you want to go, just go and do it. Now, the mind-blowing, terrible reality that we see in our passage is God has done this to humanity. That's the point that Paul is saying here. Not that he will one day do this, but that he has done this. Paul's point is what? That the wrath of God is revealed. It's currently present upon this earth. It's not fully waiting until someday when Christ returns and makes everything new and good. I know it's hard to process It doesn't fit neatly into our nostalgic perceptions of God, does it? God has cut humanity loose. Theologians call this judicial abandonment. Judicial abandonment. We see it in the Old Testament, right? Uh, That's how God responded to Old Testament Israel. Israel severed the vertical relationship. And they severed within their own society the horizontal relationships. They said no to God. And eventually God said, all right, well, I'll let you go. Follow those pursuits. See where they take you. Eventually, foreign uh, countries uh, took them into exile into foreign lands. It's as if God were saying, you want to live without me? Then, well, I grant that. I grant your permission. It was only after an exile that they realized the foolishness of their ways and they cried out to God and he delivered them. A couple commentators describe what's going on, this judicial abandonment this way. They say it's like, People are in a boat, in the water, and um, God has his hand on the boat, but at some point, he lets go, and the current of the river takes the boat 
downstream. But in fact, I think a better picture of that, which they point out as well, one commentator says, actually, God doesn't just let go of the boat. He actually, what we see here is he pushes the boat downstream. Like a judge who hands over a prisoner to the punishment of the crime that he has earned, God hands over the sinner to the terrible cycle of ever-increasing sin. So when Paul says the wrath of God is revealed, he's saying it's here already. Suppress the truth about God and see where it will get you. Want to worship your career? Guess what? God has freed you to do that. People all over the place are doing that. Want to worship status? Well, God has freed you to do that. Want to worship your own self-righteousness? Well, God will give you over to a lifestyle of blaming and complaining and judgmentalism in an ever-increasing spiral. Be careful what your heart longs for. We see in verse 21 through 24, people exchanging the truth about God for idols. And God gives them up to what? The worship of their idols. And then we see people exchange the truth about God for a lie. And God gives them up to the lust of their own hearts. Go ahead, chase after it. And then we see people exchange natural sexual practices for unnatural. And God says, all right, you want, you want a mind that thinks that's okay? I will, let you, I will give you a mind that says that's all right. That's what we see here. Now, let's take a few minutes to distill what, for many of us, is still a pretty big gorilla in the room. How are we doing, guys? Are we doing okay? Some pretty heavy stuff, huh? All right. Uh, what are we to make of verses 26 um, and 28? We see that women exchanged natural relations for unnatural, and likewise men gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for other men. Well, before we open the lid on this topic, a couple quick points. People outside of, our, outside of the church who uh, applaud the LGBT lifestyle, they look at how some Christians and some churches have behaved, and they are rightly critical. Christians have not done a good job of loving our neighbors in this area. Let me give you an example. Uh, as I said, I was a youth pastor in St. Louis for a while, and, and we, had night, uh, we had weekly Bible studies, and I'd get you know, 8, 10, 12, 15 high school guys at my house, and we go through a book in the Bible. One, one fall, we were going through the, uh, the book of John, and we had three friends, three dudes, three guys uh, from the same school who started coming to, to this Bible study. And by God's grace, uh, within a few months, all three of them um, were followers of, of Jesus Christ. But there was one guy, Alex, and he, he said something to me before he became a Christian that, that when I heard it, my heart just broke. He said, if I become a Christian does it mean I have to stop loving my mother? See, his mom began a lesbian affair with another woman and was living in that lifestyle. And he felt that, that to be a Christian meant that you couldn't love somebody who has that lifestyle. Where does he get that perception? Well, it's not from Scripture. It's not from Jesus. It's from Christians who judge people. Uh, it's, it's from Christians who um, Christians who have said the wrong things at the wrong time, said appropriate, inappropriate things. The truth is, as a Christian, 
we are people who've been lavished God's mercy and his forgiveness. We have not gotten what we deserve. We, we know that we ourselves are, are horrible in our own hearts, and but for some reason God has forgiven us for that. Therefore, how could we ever look at any other person, no matter what the issue is, and, and be judgmental of them? See, Christians in the past have done things, not everyone, but some have done things that cause people... Um, to see Christians and Christianity this way. Now, let me also say this. There are some who applaud the LGBT lifestyle um, who are themselves guilty of what for years they have been charging against Christians, namely that Christians uh, are intolerant and judgmental. See, it used to be uh, grown adults could talk about these issues without all the name-calling. Now, if you sincerely hold to the belief that homosexuality is wrong, then you're called a hater. What's taken place is those who've called for tolerance for all these years, some of them have become intolerant. If you disagree with them, they will not tolerate that. And they become judgmental. They judge you. You're a hater. You're evil. Something wrong with you. Not everyone, but that seems to be where things are going. Have you noticed that? All right, second point. We don't have much time to go through a lot of things this morning. So chances are, whatever particular itch you have regarding this topic, uh, it might not get scratched this morning, if that makes any sense. So I ask you this. If something confuses you or upsets you, look at me, I'm saying if something upsets you or confuses you, Come talk to me, right? I want to, well, I want to talk with you about this. But we don't have the time to go through all the issues and flush them all out. What we have done for you then is there's three books on the book table. Really quickly, Rosario Butterfield. She's, um, she's a former prominent leader in the LGBT movement. She was a former head of, of the prestigious women's study department at Syracuse University. Her book is titled The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Another book is by Sam Albury. It's titled, Is God Anti-Gay? It's one of the big questions people have. I'll let him tell the story. He's got a story of of his own same-sex attraction. He addresses that question. Third book is by Kevin DeYoung, a theologian. He goes to the Bible. He says, the question is, the book's titled, What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? All right. Now let's focus on what Paul is saying here. We want to stay with, with what's in the text, and we don't want to straggle too far. Now, why does Paul mention homosexual behavior? Is it because he's picking on that behavior is particularly sinful? No, we need to remember he's, he's framing an argument that mankind has spiraled out of control, that humanity is living contrary to the natural way in which God has designed things. Not just sexually, but in all sorts of ways. And the big glaring example of this in Paul's day and in ours day, in our day today, is that women and men are exchanging natural sex for that which is unnatural. You see in verse 26, 27, for the women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men. Regardless of where you fall on, on this, whether you think it's morally right or wrong or whatever, Paul, Paul's point isn't the morality of it. 
the Paul's point is, is, is this an example that we can use? And I think it is. Same-sex same erotic practices are unnatural, right? I don't think I need to like draw pictures of anatomy or anything. But the physical parts do not fit. They, by nature, um, it is unnatural. But the unnaturalness also is more than just in the physical sense. If you know your Bible, read Genesis 1 and 2. What do we see taking place there? God creates all things in, in glory. and He creates all the creatures and he creates man. And God said, let us, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, let us create man in our image. All right? And then a little bit further on, we read, and God made man. Male and female, he made them. We've discussed this before, but it takes complementary people to properly image God. God himself is one, but he's also three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Check this out. God is a unity of diversity. That's why he made man male and female. And the two came together as what? One flesh, a unity of diversity. When a man joins with a man, you don't get unity of diversity. You get unity of similarity. That's what Paul's saying. It's just not natural. Adam and Eve together as one flesh were called to reflect God's image into creation. That God's good and, nat- and purposes, natural pur- purposes for our sexuality is that we would reflect his image in this creation as a diversity. And in doing so, fill the earth, right? Uh, populate it for his glory. This is God's natural design. And so Paul's point is that we should be able to see this. This is an example by which we see the way in which mankind has suppressed the truth and therefore God has let our boat go and is saying, "Take, believe whatever you want to believe and go and live according to that way and see where it takes you. That's Paul's point there. God gave them up to the... What I also hope we see, though, is that Paul isn't picking on homosexuals over and against everybody else on the earth. In fact, what he does first in verse 24 is... is, What does he do in verse 24? He speaks... he, He condemns heterosexual sexual deviancy, right? Verse 24, God gave them up in the lust of their own hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their own bodies among themselves. God doesn't play favorites, nor does he discriminate against homosexuals. Whether you're gay or straight, God has given all humanity over. That's the point Paul wants to make. For everyone, gay or straight, there is no difference. We're all in the same boat. It was one time held in God's hands. Now it's drifting in a river away from him. He's released it into the current. And so Paul wants all of it, all of mankind to see the, the depths of the depravity of our situation. Mankind has, has suppressed the truth about God, taken him off of his throne. The vertical relationship now between creator and creature we've severed. And also, as we see, the, the horizontal has now been torn in part two. It's as if God is saying, fine, mankind, you want to live without me? See how your culture develops apart from a life centered vertically upon me. And look at verse 29 through 32. Look at all this stuff. 
They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetedness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedience of par- disobedient parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. I don't know. Can you find yourself in there anywhere? Is this, is this what we see in the society around us? And then he says, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but check this out, but give approval to those who practice them. We see that in our culture, right? We give approval to unrighteousness. We say, go ahead, that's awesome. I'm so glad you're doing that. We see it in our society. We applaud haughty, boastful behavior. I'm not a political guy. I usually don't talk politics in the pulpit, but Donald Trump, he is a boastful, haughty man. You might agree with his politics. That's great. But we can't applaud the fact that he's prideful. We can't just write it off, say, well, he's going to do the right thing for the company. I don't care if he says harsh words to women or what have you, right? But people applaud that. He's the number one in the polls right now. I'm not saying don't vote for him. I'm just saying think about things. It's an example of how we applaud things in our culture that we shouldn't be applauding. Another example uh, is, can be seen in the release of two recent films. One of them is uh, Straight Outta Compton, and the other is War Room. New York, Time, uh, New York Post um, writer Naomi Riley talks about how more people applauded the movie Straight Outta Compton than applauded uh, the movie War Room. She said... In one weekend, the top, box, the top movie at the box office went from one that glorifies sex and violence to one that glorifies traditional marriage and God. These movies, the one that tells the history of the rap group NWA and the other that tells the story of the religious journey of a woman to save her marriage, surely represent the ideals competing, check this out, for the hearts and minds of Americans, particularly African Americans. People applaud with their dollars and they go to a movie promotes violence and, and, and um, kind of hatred of women, the way in which women were treated. Uh, War Room did, did, did well, but primarily why? Because Christians were going to see it. The rest of the culture doesn't even want to see those movies, right? Our culture applauds a movie that glorifies drugs and violence. Now, let's wrap this up, no pun intended, uh, by pointing to us to where Paul is pointing us. Paul is pointing us towards our need of Christ. In verse 32... He pronounces the verdict, right? Those who practice such things deserve to die. He's saying regarding all humanity, though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die. Though people don't like know God, uh, we should know God, um, we do at least know like his law, at least to a certain degree. We, we know what right and wrong is. We just choose not, not to do it. We also know that justice is right, right? We want a good judge when someone hurts us. We know it's wrong to steal. And we expect the judge to find the thief guilty. But the problem that Paul addresses here is that we are all thieves. We are thieves of God's glory. We want it for ourselves We feel we deserve to be on the throne. We don't want God up there. And so God has every right to judge us for how we live this life apart from him. 
Thankfully, though, Paul will eventually get us further down into Romans. There's this passage in Romans which really succinctly shows us how great and loving God is. It says, Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right? The wages, right? Wages are what your boss owe you for the work you did. You know, maybe it wasn't all that great, right? The wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. And what we see here, it's, it's, it's eternal separation from God. That's what it is. That's what hell is. It's, it's the place where people get to live for the rest of eternity with the wish that God wasn't around. People end up in hell not because of their sexual orientation, but because of their rebel status. That's the point Paul's making. Remember C.S. Lewis, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. Thankfully, there's a but in that passage of Paul's. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's a free gift for you. If you're a rebel and you realize you need to put God back on his throne, you don't earn your way back. It's a free gift through Jesus Christ. Jesus on the cross took the anger of God for your sin, against your sin. He took it upon himself for you. And by trusting in him, the vertical is restored as if nothing has ever gone wrong. It's a free gift. I want to close by retelling my story. I've gone a little long, but let me... Not my whole story. I'm 49 years old. All right. Um, I told you last week that I became a Christian when I was 29. Prior to that, I was an atheist slash uh, agnostic. It depended upon which day of the week it was and to who I was talking to, right? Uh, and so I had many conversations with Christians who would say, how can you not believe in God? Just look at the world around you. Uh, and I was like, oh, the world doesn't, it doesn't prove anything. It came out of nowhere. You know, it can just happen by chance, as if chance is some sort of powerful agent, right? It's just a statistical <laughs> measuring device. But, um, you know, and, and, and I, would, I literally said things like this, so arrogant of me. I would say, if, if God wants me to believe in him, he needs to come down here and speak to me. You know, he's got to show me. He's got to open my eyes. He's got he's to prove himself beyond a doubt that he exists. Careful what you wish for. In late August of 1995, 20 years ago, um, God woke me. Literally and figuratively. I was asleep and I woke with this overwhelming sense of dread that, and here's the thought that was in my mind, I couldn't get rid of it. If there is a God, and it's still an if for me, if there is a God, he is rightly ticked. That wasn't the word I used, but he is rightly ticked at humanity. Why? Because we human beings are, are like bugs scurrying across the earth, screwing each other, PG-13, and, and screwing each other over. And no one's looking up to honor the deity. So what did I do? Did I bow my knee and become a Christian? No, I I poured a pint of vodka and I drank it in three gulps and I passed out. But then I woke up a few hours later, sober, with the same haunting thought in my head. If there is a God above, he has every right to be angered at people on earth. 
Because people are not looking up. People are uh, living lives for their own glory. It set me on a journey. I, I went and I bought, bought a Bible, started reading the book of Romans, and there it is. Do you see that? Thankfully, here's the point we need to see. Thankfully, God, by his grace, as I'm suppressing the truth about him, he says, Mark, no, I'm going to lift that spring up a bit. I'm going to come upon you in such a way that without a doubt, you have to deal with me. And it's going to be hard. It's going to feel like wrestling. It was a few months of real struggle. I had big, I had, I had big defeater beliefs about God that I had to address. And over that time, I did. And he humbled me. And he gave me new life. What does that mean for you? I don't know. Where are you today? Are you someone who, if, as you're thinking this through, you, you're... You see yourself on your own throne. You're suppressing the truth. You got an idol of work or something else. You're living for yourself, your own glory. You, you, I encourage you to, to, to see what this passage talks about. It's telling us that we're not in a good spot, right? Um, the fact that we continue to deny God is because he has let us do that. <laughs> and I encourage you to, to turn to him, trust in him, take yourself off the throne, put God on his throne, bow a knee, receive forgiveness in Christ. I don't know, maybe you got some big hang-up that's keeping you from it. Maybe, maybe you, you can't become a Christian because you think if you become a Christian, you're going to hate gay people. I hope you realize that's not the case, right? We're a church that loves all people and cares for people's souls. So is Jesus. He's like that. Come to him. Some of you, I think most of you here, you've, you've taken yourself off of the, th- of the throne and you placed God there. But isn't it true? Time to time, we somehow seem to crawl back up there <laughs> and our life begins again to be lived for ourselves and for our own glory. We need to be reminded of the state of affairs. This is who we are by nature and it, and it keeps crawling back at us. It's also a reminder to you that really God is the one who powerfully uh, makes himself clear to you. And so if you have come to faith in Christ, it's because God has desired that for you. He has put his spirit upon you so that your eyes can see and your mind can now think clearly, maybe not perfectly, but clearly, about who God is and about who we are in his presence and our great, great need of his son, our Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Uh, You do give wisdom to those who seek it from you. And we thank you that by your spirit, we can know you, not perfectly, but sufficiently. And that by your spirit, we can know ourselves, not perfectly, but sufficiently. We pray that you continue to work in your people to make us new in Jesus Christ. uh, That the world around us would not see us as haters, but as lovers. uh, and, And may you use us to bring people to the truth about Christ, we pray. Amen.